Welcome to How I Lawyer, a podcast where I talk to attorneys from throughout the profession about what they do, why they do it, and how they do it well. I'm your host, Jonah Perlin, a law professor in Washington, D.C. This episode is sponsored, edited, and engineered by my friends at Law Pods. Law Pods is a professional podcast production company focused solely on attorney podcasting. I absolutely love working with them, and if you're considering becoming a legal podcaster or just want to learn more, check them out at lawpods.com. And now, let's get started. Hello, and welcome back. In today's episode, I'm excited to speak with Jenny Katzman, who's currently General Counsel and Chief of Domestic Policy for Senator Ron Wyden. Before working on Capitol Hill, she worked as a Director of Policy Development and Programming at ACS, the American Constitution Society, and before that, worked in the Executive Branch at the White House, DOJ, and the Department of Education, and as a Voter Protection Counselor for Obama for America. Prior to her career in policy work, she worked in private practice at two different law firms and served as a law clerk to a federal judge. And she is a graduate of Duke, go Blue Devils, and Cornell Law, go Big Red. Lots of colors in there. Thanks for being here, Jenny. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Jonah. Awesome. Well, look, I'm super excited to talk to someone who has as much like politics and policy experience because I really haven't had that on the podcast before, but that's not exactly where you started your legal career. So I'd love to start there and sort of talk a little bit about first your decision to become a lawyer and then your first couple of years of practice. Sure. So um, my decision to become a lawyer was, you know, sort of random. I liked a lot of things that lawyers like, like political science. I had studied Thurgood Marshall when I was in high school. I interned at the Georgetown Criminal Justice Clinic when I was in college. So a lot of things that sort of made sense to become a lawyer. And I didn't have any, I was like, basically everybody in my family were doctor, some version of a doctor or a dentist. My dad's a dentist. Um, and my mom was a teacher. And so I didn't have a lot of lawyers in my family. And I didn't really know all the different types of lawyers that there were or the type of things you can do with a legal background. And so I sort of went to law school and sort of just followed the track of what most people do in law school. And at my law school, most people went to law firms. And so that's what I did. Hmm. Yeah, it's funny. One of the things about becoming a lawyer, as opposed to, say, becoming a doctor, right? is that you can go in with almost no knowledge about what you're going to do when you come out. And you're only learning about it sort of live and in the moment. And there, there's it works for a lot of people. There's some danger to it too, but it works for a lot of people. And it's interesting to hear that sort of that was your path as well. What was your experience working at law firms and in sort of uh, law firm life? What kind of things were you doing? What kind of things did you like or maybe not like so much? Yeah, so I did my first stint at a larger law firm. And I was in their general litigation practice. And because it was a really big law firm with lots of lawyers and really big cases, I sort of worked on different pieces of the litigation. So I never really saw an entire case. So I was, you know, either doing like this sort of basic, you know, junior associate type of things, document review, or writing responses to, to litigation and, and briefs and things like that, or having a piece of a brief to work on, but never the entire thing. And so I was really eager to actually go and then clerk. And so I did my clerkship in between two different times at law firms. And when I went back to a different law firm after my clerkship, I knew I didn't want to go to one of those really enormous law firms. And I wanted to see and own more of a case. And so that's what I did. So my two law firm experiences are very different. One was very general litigation, really just sort of figuring out what it meant to be a lawyer and doing little bits of being a lawyer. And then afterwards, I had a much better sense of what litigation looked like and was able to take on a lot more and went and I sort of 
specialized more. I've worked more in white collar criminal defense work at the, at the second law firm that I went to. That's interesting. It's funny because sometimes students ask me, is it okay or is it a good idea to do a clerkship after you've practiced for a little while? In my experience, the answer was yes. I also, I had one year before my clerkship and I sort of had a sense, I had a much better sense of like what was going on in the clerkship because I had had a little experience, but I also feel like I appreciated the clerkship so much more because I saw how hard it was to get all of those experiences. And the nice part about clerking is you have so many different cases at different stages. You get to pick up a little bit. Was that your experience as well? It was. And I was the second set of law clerks for my judge. So he was a relatively new judge. And so he was still learning. And so that was really exciting. It was kind of good to not be the first set because the first set is like, you know, really getting like the office set up and everything like that. But he was just like totally new that when they asked him if he would wanted to sit by designation on the Second Circuit, he was like, sure, I'll take a week. And most district court judges take a day or two. So we had like a full, you know, sitting. So it was a great experience because we got to do so much. Yeah, it's always so nice being on the ground floor of something. There's also, you know, challenges to being on the ground floor of something because you kind of have to set up the house while you're building it with no plans. Absolutely. And I think that that, that was definitely true because you know, he was a civil litigator. He obviously, you know, had a lot of criminal cases. And I think a lot of district court judges have maybe that criminal background. Maybe they were AUSAs or even criminal defense attorneys. And so, you know, they don't use their law clerks as much on that side. And my judge definitely did. So I got to see a lot, which is why I then went and did the white collar criminal defense work following the clerkship. That's really interesting. And it's it's something that I, I think I sometimes get the question from students when they have a clerkship or a judicial internship interview, like, what should I ask? And one of the things that your answer just made me think of is sort of how do you use your clerks for criminal cases would be a pretty interesting question. Yeah, no, it definitely is. And I think that, you know, it's hard because most law clerks are pretty young. Criminal cases are, I mean, all cases are very serious, but criminal cases, obviously, when they're involving the liberty of an individual um, are, you know, just just a different level. And I think my judge hit a nice balance where he really did not include his his law clerks who were in their 20s on things like sentencing decisions. Um, but we definitely did research and, you know, helped him prepare for the cases um, as they came up. So we got a good amount of experience that I think was also appropriate. Great. Let's jump into your more sort of your second act, which is a somewhat longer act as well, which is your work in, in policy and in politics. What made you decide to sort of leave the firm world, the litigation world, and and transition into the kind of work that you've been doing for the last couple of years? So when I, I was always really interested in politics. I, when I was like 18, I volunteered on a New York State Assemblywoman's campaign. I had done a lot of different volunteering and was just always having political conversations, doing work in that space when I had time. I never knew that we could really make a career out of it or that a lot of people could make a career out of it. I was living in New York, so I didn't have the sort of DC exposure. Again, I didn't have anybody in my family who did this type of work, but I was working with a partner at the law firm who was a senior legal advisor to the Obama campaign. And I had previously volunteered in the 08 campaign, but not, you know, not not at a high level volunteering. And he came to me and he said that, you know, they have they have a position open or their National Border Protection Council would handle a lot of the litigation, particularly around voting rights. And I had done some of that work in law firm capacity on pro bono on a pro bono basis. And he asked if I would be interested in doing it. And I ended up meeting with the general counsel of the of the Obama campaign, who was this former White House counsel, Bob Bauer. 
And I mean, it just like, I couldn't have met with a better person, somebody who I, who I would have wanted to work for at the time and would want to work for in pretty much every capacity now too. And it sort of just all really happened very quickly. And I went from living in New York, working at a law firm to being on a presidential campaign or presidential reelection in like a matter of six weeks. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> it was really fast. Yeah. And I guess when I think of campaign work, right, I think of like people knocking doors or people doing advance or people doing grassroots organizing. What is it like to be a lawyer on a campaign? Well, being a lawyer on a campaign sort of depends what kind of campaign you're on. And now I have been on a lot of them. But on a presidential campaign, it is it's enormous. And this is this was a sitting president too, right? So it's not somebody who, you know, is hoping to win the nomination or anything. Um, and you have so many different teams. And I think that a lot of people on campaign who are not lawyers are used to lawyers saying no. And one of the first things I learned from Bob Bauer is we try to get to yes 80% of the time, <laughs> which is a really great approach because I think a lot of lawyers, when you hear an idea, your first inclination is to be like, no, 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 no. Because you hear the idea and all the sort of red flags that lawyers are trained to think about come up. Right. But, the, but you, you have to be creative on a campaign because you're not the, you're not the product. And, and in some ways you're very dispensable, but in other ways, you know, you're, I was working for a sitting president and everything was under a microscope. And so any sort of mistake we would make, whether or not it was a lawyer or, you know, somebody who was working in the field would go, you know, could potentially end up in a newspaper and it would say Obama staffer or Obama campaign staffer. So there was, the expectations were that everything was going to be very careful. Every I was going to be dotted, every T was going to be crossed, but that we needed to win the re-election. Were the skills that different than the kind of work you were doing sort of as a white collar litigator? So a lot of the skills are transferable. And I found that throughout my career, a lot of research. We were briefing cases up to the Supreme Court. So, you know, yeah, different topics and your your client is certainly different than when you're in a law firm. But no, I mean, like the, the skill sets are the same. You learn a lot of things, certainly on a campaign that you don't learning in a law firm. But you bring a lot based on your time in a law firm and your understanding of the litigation process, the litigation process, going through a case dealing with voting rights, you know, is, is the same sort of litigation process. It might be expedited because you, you have a looming deadline. Right. I was going to say the timelines are probably a little different in that capacity. And one of the other things you said was it's different on a presidential campaign versus sort of the smaller, more state and local campaigns. Talk to me a little bit about that difference. Yeah, I think a presidential campaign, especially for a sitting president, feels a little bit probably more professional. Um, it has a lot more experience, probably. I think depending on the candidate that you may be working for and what level it might feel like, it might feel a little bit more ragtag at a you know at a you know more local level. And I think in a lot of ways that's really great because people get to do a lot more things in different areas than they they might you know you have several hundred people working on a campaign in the in the presidential capacity. But yeah, so I mean, it's, it's, it's obviously the money's different too, right? <laughs> Presidential candidates, certainly an Obama candidate is able to raise a lot more money. It's also a lot more expensive to run the campaign too. Sure. It's funny. It almost sounds like I've interviewed a bunch of in-house counsel at various sized entities, and it sounds very similar to the in-house counsel for like a startup versus the in-house counsel for a well-established corporation. They have the same title and they're doing generally the same things, but because their client is so different, the atmosphere is really different. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. You know, but even on a presidential campaign, I used to describe my job to my friends back in New York as I was everything from like a paralegal to a partner to an in-house counsel, right? Because you get to make 
really, really huge decisions. But at the same time, you're working on a campaign and we don't even have our own individual staplers because we're trying to save money so that we can use it on all sorts of other things that are more necessary for a campaign. So there's no <laughs> word processing department to use. You're making your own copies. You're doing your, you know, all the sort of stuff that you would expect somebody when you're at a law firm that was more junior to you to be doing. That's really interesting. And after you had the opportunity to do some campaign work, you got some governing experience as well in the executive branch um, at various places. So I'd be curious to hear about sort of the transition from the campaign to actually governing and what kind of uh, your experience was in your different roles. Yeah. So I think during the campaign is when I realized that I could use my legal skills and do something I really loved, which I really didn't have that experience before. I liked being a lawyer, but I didn't love what I was doing as a lawyer. And so I was able to sort of leverage my time in the campaign to get a political appointment in the Obama administration in the second term. And I started off at the Department of Justice, and it was a mixture of legal slash policy work. And I mean, that has really, ever since then, really been my sweet spot. I love being able to use the skills that I have as a lawyer, use my sort of lawyer brain, because I think as lawyers, you're really trained to think about things in a different way than, than non-lawyers. But I was able to focus on policy areas that I really cared about in the Department of Justice that was particularly criminal justice reform. Hmm. And when you say policy work, like law students tend to think about like litigation, transactional, regulatory. What do you mean by that term? Or what do people who work in policy mean by doing policy work? What does that look like? kind of at a 50,000 foot out level, but also like on a day-to-day -day basis? Sure. So like when you're representing clients in a litigation, you're representing an individual or an entity, right? So you can see what, what's the impact going to be on them. When you're thinking about policy, you're thinking, what are these issues that are affecting so many people and what can we do? Um, whether it's at some place like the Department of Justice, where it's maybe issuing guidance or deciding I wasn't on a litigating team, but something that might be a larger litigation that could have ramifications for, for more people. But it's making decisions that are going to impact more than more than one, pe one person and hopefully have a really positive impact. And the group that I was in at the Department of Justice, it was focused on increasing access to justice for people unable to afford counsel, both in the civil and the criminal contexts. And so a lot of times that was trying to get in, you know, grants or other programs that were already established in the federal level, money for civil legal aid or for um, or to have federal defenders or public defenders at the table and making decisions. Uh, you know, so it could be like we're different grants that come out of the Department of Justice and the Department of Justice gives a lot of grants and in, in these spaces. And traditionally, the people at the table tend to be people in law enforcement. And it wasn't the case that they were public defenders coming and putting, you know, imparting their views. And that makes a really big difference. Yeah. Who sits at the table always makes a really big difference. And what I, what is really interesting about that is I can hear you use your lawyer brain and your lawyer experience in terms of how you thought about the issues, but the actual task sounds a little bit different in the sense that you're trying to figure out how to problem solve in a policy oriented way. Yeah, no, definitely. And there are things sometimes that you do that are like very specific lawyer type of work. So one of the things that my team did was craft what we called statements of interest, which are basically the government coming in and filing an amicus brief, right? But they're saying things like the government has an interest in this. And then and the area that we focused on was really sort of novel for the Department of Justice because it was the Department of Justice coming in saying that, you know, this state isn't 
giving enough resources to their public defenders and so that people being charged with crimes are fundamentally being denied the right to counsel. So even though it's very, it was a litigation, we get to come in and say this stuff, the broader impacts are policy-based. And, you know, I don't also don't want to step on the fact that you sort of talked about how working on the campaign was your entree into getting this position and getting a political appointment. I'd be really curious to hear sort of what your recommendations are. I'm sure people come to you and ask you, like, I want to, I'm a lawyer, I have a law degree, I'm fairly junior, I want to work in federal government or state government. What kind of advice do you give those people? Yeah, I mean, I think it's for everybody it can be a little bit different. I do think that volunteering, if you can do it, and it's really hard if you're a junior lawyer, you know, at a law firm to find that time to volunteer. I completely understand that. But if you can do it, it's that's the way you meet people. That's the way you learn the work. And that's the way you add experience on your resume. So if you can do that, then that's the, the perfect way to get involved in it. And there's always ways to like, especially voter protection, which is such a legal specific part of a campaign and it is just growing more and more important every single cycle. That's the way I would I would recommend people doing it. There's also, you know, you can look for jobs that are in these spaces. There are plenty of jobs for lawyers at the Department of Justice on the Hill. And, you know, a lot of people don't think that they're qualified because they haven't worked in government before. Uh, but I think places like particularly the Hill need a lot of people who have never been on the Hill before. Right. It's so true for so many sort of more junior, at least in terms of experience jobs. It's like no one has experience when they start. And it's a matter of sort of demonstrating you have some interest and some transferable skills and and you kind of go from there. And I'm glad you mentioned it because I think there are a lot of people who think everyone who works in the government has a political appointment and goes before the Senate and like living in DC, like you and I know that a lot of people are career people, both on the Hill and the executive branch, meaning you just apply for a job and you get to work no matter who's in office. Yeah, that's right. I've never had that, but my husband works in the government as a civil servant. Right. And my wife did before when, before she worked with you. So, you know, that those people are here, but I don't think people outside of DC even know that that often exists. Right. No, it, it certainly does. And, and I, you know, I really didn't know it existed either when I was living in New York. But there are, there are a lot of different jobs. And also working in the nonprofit space, you will liaise a lot with people in government, whether they're at the agencies or at the Hill. And then you learn what sort of what they're doing too. And that if you end up applying for those types of jobs, you have experience having worked with them and helping them to accomplish their goals and then working with you to accomplish your goals. So, I mean, those skills, like you said, those skills are transferable, but those relationships are also really important. At which brings me to my next question. So you did a great natural transition there, which is your work after the administration ended. I imagine, I won't speak for you, but I'm curious about how you decided to move into sort of the nonprofit policy space after having served in the executive branch and sort of what kind of work you did there. Yeah. So I think like a lot of people in 2016, I was very sort of shocked by the election outcome. And I was still serving in the Obama administration then at the Department of Education. And I kind of was at a loss, really, what to do. And it took me a little bit of time to sort of find my bearings. And I knew I wanted to continue to do work that I found was meaningful, work on issues that I really cared about. We no longer controlled the executive branch, and the Senate and the House didn't look much better. And so I, I looked at a bunch of nonprofits. I had never worked at a nonprofit before, but I had worked with people at nonprofits a lot because when you're doing policy work, you're often engaging stakeholders on the ground. 
And so I, um, I looked at some of the organizations that I had worked with and found a great position at the American Constitution Society. And I knew about their work and I, I connected with them. And it was a portfolio that really matched up to a lot of the work that I had done before. And it was a role reversal, right? Because even though, you know, it's a nonprofit and they don't, they don't lobby, you do work and they do put out issue briefs about certain issues that people in, in the agencies and now on the Hill look at and take under advisement when drafting policy. What were some of the biggest differences between working in government and working sort of for a nonprofit that was advocating to government? Oh, well, there are actually a lot of differences. Just sort of the power dynamic is very different. You're When you're in a nonprofit, you're sort of trying to get the attention of a lot of people in the government. Whereas you don't realize that like sometimes when you're in the government, like how, you know, sort of invaluable you seem to people on the on the outside. And I think like it was part of the learning experience for me at for me at ACS was trying to figure out how to have that same level of impact when you don't have the power of or the force of government behind you. That's that's a really interesting point because I think you're so right that especially if you know we talked all about your your start as a, as a litigator and right you're trying to get clients but once you have clients like they want to hear from you and when you're in government everyone wants to have your ear being in a nonprofit one of the biggest challenges is to get you could have the best argument in the world but if nobody's going to take a meeting with you or listen it doesn't kind of matter that's right that's right and you know it was a really challenging time for an organization like ACS too because a lot of the things that it that it works to advance were, were very much being challenged at that time. Um, and when you're working in the government, it seems very obvious what you can do from that. You might not be successful at it, but the, you know, the sort of things that you can do to sort of, you know, fight the good fight are pretty obvious. And so that it felt a little less obvious to me when I was at what at ACS initially. And now you're on the Hill. So you're back in government, but in the legislative branch, talk to me a little bit about that change and also some of the differences between being on the legislative side. Sure. So I had always wanted to work in Congress. It would seemed really fascinating to me. I'd also had all, you know, the other two branches of, of the government. Checked off. Belt, right. And so I was really eager to see what that was like. I found it really sort of like almost an interesting challenge to get the type of position that I wanted on the Hill, having not had congressional experience. One of the things that somebody said to me in one of those like really awful coffees that you sometimes have when you're you're meeting people in DC and trying to figure out what they do and, you know, network in general is the only substitute for Hill experience is Hill experience. And I thought that's something that the person had heard that thought was, then they thought was cute and they stored in the back of their brain and they used at like the most awkward time, um, which is, you know, basically saying that like the only way you get a good job on the Hill is having been, you know, an intern on the Hill and then having been a junior staffer on the Hill. That's just such a terrible way to to hire, but it is a lot yeah. of the way it is it is pretty common on the hill. Yeah, so I was going to say, is there any accuracy to that statement, despite how sort of almost distasteful it is? Is there some accuracy in it? Sure, and I think that there has been a lot of attention focused in the last several years to reverse that, whether it's like your paid internships, because people who can afford an internship that's not you know that isn't paid, like you really sort of narrow your field of applicants. Um, and I do think so. I think that there are people on the Hill who think like, well, how am I going to know if this person is going to be able to be successful unless they've been successful at a lower level on the Hill? I think it's a really lazy approach to hiring because I think that 
first of all, keeps a lot of people who are really good and qualified out of the mix. And also like I, part of the thing problems that I've seen on the Hill is that, you know, you don't have that sort of like diverse pool of people working there. And it's not just even the sort of obvious things that obviously the Hill needs to correct, which is, you know, racial, ethnic, gender diversity. But you don't have a lot of working moms on the Hill. And when we think about things like, why can't we pass paid leave? You know, a lot of you might look at the members and say, well, maybe this isn't a priority for the member, but it's also probably not a priority for their staff because they don't have a lot of, you know, people who are parents. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I guess one of the challenges I think in is exactly what I've heard in people trying to get jobs on the Hill is people say, well, you have 10 years of lawyer experience and you're going to have to open mail and that for almost no wages. And that doesn't make sense for anybody. No, and it's crazy because then you're not using all these skills that this person has and they bring to the table. And so I think like, you know, you don't want to work for those types of offices. If you meet somebody and they say what somebody had said to me, I would say just don't even bother. But there are Hill offices that are good places to go to. And I found one. And I started off as a senior counsel, which is probably a little lower than I was qualified to be. But I quickly moved up and now I head our domestic policy team and I'm the general counsel for the office. So I think it's also an example of if you can find an office that will value you and understands that you are bringing expertise and that you can learn the intricacies of the Hill, then you can also grow pretty quickly there. I love that. You just sort of gave your job titles. I guess I'm curious, like, what does that look like on a day-to-day basis? Like, as a prior guest once told me he likes to ask in depositions, like, what would I see if I followed you around for a couple of days? What kind of things are you doing? Yeah, I mean, the Hill's crazy. So, um, there's two different parts of my job. So the general counsel, which is very much like what you would think of as a general counsel in-house, I would say. I handle a lot of things, everything from like if somebody on our team has a question about gifts or general ethics things, even including the senator, to reviewing amicus briefs and dealing with complaints that are made in the office. And then the other side of it is policy. So I lead a team that sort of changes in number depending on our, our staff and um, fellows but about a team of 10, and we cover all the domestic policy issues in um, Senator Wyden's personal office. And um, I focus primarily on issues related to judiciary and sort of the voting and democracy portfolios. But if you'd follow me around, you'd sort of see a mix of those two different worlds. So sort of using my lawyer brain and then using my policy brain. And the policy brain could be, you know, like we have a judge that we you know, we have an, a vacancy for and we need to push through committee and then get a vote on the, the floor, which is what we're currently doing. Could be a bill idea that my boss has or one that I've generated for him um, and working, you know, with different offices to get support to draft ledge text. And then you're working with outside stakeholders to get their input and eventual endorsement and then trying to get the attention of everybody else on the Hill to try to make it law. You know, it sort of varies day to day and what else is going on? My life when the pandemic hit was very different from my life right now on the Hill. Um, and um, when the pandemic hit, it was like very, very intense. And the issues that were what was focused on were different. So I was leading the domestic policy team. Small business sort of became my life. Um, it was not an issue that I had a ton of expertise on, but I had to learn very quickly um, because it was impacting so many people across the country. Um, and it was also trying to, the Hill had to move very quickly on very big packages. And that is not something that the Congress is really known for doing. I mean, big packages, yes, but not, you know, in a matter of days and having to come to an agreement because the country depended on it. And so, yeah, so I mean, you know, while we're still in the throes of of issues related to the pandemic and people are still pushing for things, the sort of 
urgency and the emergency nature of it all is a little bit different now than it was in March of 2020. And what role does sort of politics play in your job, whether that's making sure that your senator gets reelected by his constituents or what is on the front page of the Washington Post and what everybody's talking about. On the one hand, it sounds like you're trying to think big things and trying to make large changes to make the country a better place. On the other hand, there's we know that there's a lot of politics and a lot of logjam in the Senate right now. Like, What role does politics play in your day-to-day life? So my boss was uh, just reelected. When there is the sort of a re-election stuff going on, there is a divide between the campaign side and the, the official office side, and there are a lot of rules. So in sort of that way, there is a very clear divide and the work you do is very separate. But, you know, you are thinking about your constituents, not just for re-election purposes, but because my boss is, he represents the state of Oregon in the United States Senate. And so when you're looking at bills that might be circulating on the Hill or things that you might want to create, you're wondering what the impact in the state's going to be. Who's going to support it? Who's going to oppose it? What are those reasons? And those certainly weigh in on it. Senator Wyden is definitely a legislator in a way that I think maybe some of the sort of newer faces on the Hill might not be. He's very interested in creating policy and digging in on it and trying to, to come to an agreement as long as it makes sense. I think sometimes you can try to work with, you know, across the aisle and with different members, even in your own caucus and take out all the really good pieces of a bill in order to get to an agreement. And then it's not really worth, you know, continuing on um, and working uh, to pursue. But he really is somebody who tries to find areas that are bipartisan. He's sort of, you know, known for it, really. Like, there are a lot of areas where a lot of maybe some different members might not be able to find agreement across the aisle, but he he has managed, and I work with Republican offices very often. Um, and I'm not sure that that's true for, for most offices on the Hill. And is there a divide, you think, between folks who are doing the kind of policy work you're doing on the Senate side versus on the House side? I think in some ways, particularly after January 6th, it was harder on the House side than it was on the Senate side. Because there were so many members on the Republican side in the House that objected to the certification of Biden as president. And I think there was a big question after January 6th, what to do? Where do you try to find common ground? Who do you work with? Who should you not work with? And in the Senate, there wasn't that same level of election denialism. Not to say that it didn't exist, but there wasn't that same level So I think in terms of being able to operate, it was easier, although it is still incredibly challenging. I think that, you know, when I talk to people who were working on the Hill 15 years ago, you know, they'll say some of these things keep coming up, but um, that it was very different. Bipartisanship or more appetite for working together across the aisles or just not being a 50-50 Senate or what's that difference? Yeah, I mean, the 5050 certainly plays into that. But I do think there, that the appetite for bipartisanship probably existed. And I'm not sure how much of it is a result of what happened, you know, over the last several years versus like, you know, just also the way that every bit of information comes out, you know, so quickly, right? So it's like you were able to maybe work with somebody and come up with a great solution. And then it would be sort of be delivered to the press as opposed to reporting on it and having to deal every single like hour with misinformation being circulated about what the type of work you were doing and having to defend that. Yeah, that's a that's obviously a huge change and a really good point. 
I guess the other question I have for people who are listening to this who may not know a lot about like what kind of other jobs are on the Hill, like you work for a particular senator doing policy work in a sort of specific space and working as the general counsel of the office. What other kinds of roles are lawyers playing on the Hill um, that you sort of see or get to work with? Yeah, so I work with a lot of the different councils in personal offices, but also with a lot of the staff on Judiciary Committee. So um, Judiciary Committee works operates a little bit differently from other committees, but you each of the members on the committee have staff dedicated to those issues and the chair and the ranking member, which each represent the, the leader from either side of the political aisle, have more staff than the rest of their you know, other members. And then on each other committee, there are people that are oftentimes lawyers that are, you know, experts in different things. So, you know, my boss is the chair of the finance committee and the finance committee has jurisdiction mm-hmm. over a number of issues, including a lot of tax issues. So there are tax lawyers on that committee, but in other committees have the same thing where they'll have lawyers on, on that. And there are also, there's, you know, Senate legal counsel. There is um, the congressional research office. Um, you know, there are a lot of, there are, you know, a lot of different roles that lawyers can have on the Hill. And what's the big difference, if there is one, between working on a personal staff versus working on a committee staff? Even if you're working sort of ostensibly for the same person, but you're wearing a different hat, what are the differences between those two roles? So I think it depends on the member. Our My boss treats his committee staff, personal office staff, state staff, as we're all sort of one big team. Obviously, we focus on different issues. Um, and I think that makes things much easier because we are all very aware of what everybody is working on. There aren't doesn't create those types of silos. But some offices I do know do treat have those roles in you know very separate places. Judiciary staffers don't feel as much part of their personal office. They're very focused on what is happening just in that one committee and might not have a good sense of well how that type of work impacts other pieces of that member's priorities. And I guess the question I sometimes like to ask when I'm talking to somebody who clearly has sort of found something that they both like, as you said, and, you know, fits your skill set and that you're good at, like, what are some of your favorite parts about your job? Wow, that's a that's a really good question. I so I think when I was working at a law firm, I sometimes sort of felt like really not connected to what I was doing. Like I could do a good job and I didn't go home feeling great about that. I mean, it feel good, you know, that you'd done, you know, some good work and people were happy with that, but it didn't really impact my overall level of happiness. No matter what, even when I sort of lose a fight that I might be having, or my boss doesn't get the resolution to an issue that, that he wants and that he thinks is good for this country and for the people of Oregon, I never once have gone to bed feeling like this isn't the type of work I should be doing or that... I didn't try to do the right thing. So I think that that is probably my favorite part is that while there are things that probably keep me up at night worrying about other things in my life and in the world in general, what I'm doing in my job is not one of them. And of your experiences, so executive branch, campaign, nonprofit, Hill, if you had to choose to do one for the rest of your career, which would you choose? So hands down... Being on a presidential campaign was the most exciting experience of my life. I loved every second of it. 
I could not do that every single day of my life. It was exhausting. Yes, right. Absolutely exhausting. And it's stressful. And their stakes feel so, so high. But that feeling is like a feeling that you constantly want to chase. I love it. I love it. Well, look, we're getting close to the end of our time. And I always like to sort of end these conversations by asking for a piece of advice, something that you wish you knew when you were starting or something that you try to impart to more junior lawyers that you work with. You know, this podcast really is geared toward people sort of towards the beginning of their career. Although shout out to all the retired lawyers who listen, you give me a lot of great ideas. What's something you would want to leave listeners with as a piece of professional advice? I think speaking up, I think when I was a really junior lawyer, I felt like everybody had a lot more experience than I did. And so I sort of was quiet in those in the meetings when I could have added something to it. I one of the great things, and I think it's also the reverse when you're in the position of power, making sure that you're drawing those people out. But I remember being on conference calls when we were litigating on the presidential campaign up to the Supreme Court on a voting case. And my boss, Bob Bauer, had a lot of really fancy people on those calls, a lot of law professors who you and I both know about and lawyers who had clerked on the Supreme Court. And it could have felt really intimidating, but he went one by one and was like, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? And he never once made anybody feel like their opinion was less important or less valuable than somebody who was, you know, a professor at NYU Law. And I think that's a really great way to be a lawyer in general, because you never know when great ideas are going to come or who they're going to come from. And if you're closing ranks and not allowing those ideas to come out, then you're also missing out. Fantastic. Well, look, Jenny, this has been so fun. I look forward to our continued conversations and obviously good luck in your own work and in the work on behalf of Senator Wyden. So thanks for doing this. Thanks, Jonah. This was fun. Again, I'm Jonah Perlin, and this is the How I Lawyer podcast. Thanks to podcast sponsor Law Pods for their expert editing. If you're a lawyer considering starting your own podcast, definitely check them out at lawpods.com. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, I hope you'll consider sharing it with friends and colleagues or on social media. And of course, if you haven't already done so, please sign up for the email list at howilawyer.com or subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. As always, if you have comments, suggestions, or ideas for the show, please reach out to me at howilawyer at gmail.com or at Jonah Perlin on Twitter. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.